All right. Well, good morning to everyone and a virtual welcome to the well here at STSA. As Katie said, usually we're here, um, we meet in, in person at a, at, a, at a university, but hey, today we're meeting online in homes and kitchens and family rooms. And we're just thankful really for the technology that God has given us that despite not being able to meet physically together, that we can still meet together uh, virtually like this. So I hope you're excited. I'm excited. Today is the day of the Lord. And we're going to be talking about a super important topic. And it's, you know, we started this series, Unshakable. We're at the midway point now. We started this series, Unshakable, three or four weeks ago. And nobody knew how relevant this topic was going to be. But now that we see all the events going on in the world, we realize that God had a plan. And then he clearly had a plan from the start about what it is that we're talking about. Because, as you see, is we are talking about what it means to be unshakable in our faith. I'm sorry, Katie, do you mind to hand me the clicker? I'm sorry. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. And our series, the key verse to this series, is coming from Psalm chapter 125, verse 1. Sorry, one second. There we go. Psalm 125, verse 1. And what I usually do at church is I would make people read this out loud because I like us to memorize verses, and I think that when we say it together, it helps us to memorize. So I'm going to ask you in your homes to read along here with me as I'm saying this. Okay, ready? Psalm 125, 1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. The idea of this series is based on the, on, the, on the idea that trusting in God and faith in God is not a yes or no. It's not a I either trust or I don't trust. I believe or I don't believe. That is not the case. Rather, it's more like warm or warmer. Like you can be warm, the house can be warm, but it can still be warmer, okay? And it's the same thing in our faith, is there's degrees of faith or there's a growth in faith. We looked at in the very first week of this series a story from John chapter 4. If you weren't there, you can go back and get caught up online or you can go read the story about a man whose son was sick. And that man grew in his faith and in his trust as the story went along. So first it took him a certain level of faith to come to Jesus and ask for the miracle. And then Jesus told him to go back to his home and his son would be okay. And it took a certain level of faith to obey that. And then it took an even more amount of faith by the end when he saw the guy was healed, that he said, you know what? Me and my household, we are sold out, all in believers of Christ. That's the ultimate goal, is we want to take steps in our faith so that we can be, like Mount Zion, unshakable in our faith. All right? Most of us, if we're honest, our faith is not like a mountain. A mountain means no matter what you throw at it, it stands strong. So the wind hits the mountain, nothing happens. The rains hit the mountain, nothing happens. The, uh, a, a bus could hit a mountain, nothing would happen. Nothing can shake a mountain. That's what we want our faith to be. If we're honest, a lot of us, our faith, less like a mountain, more like a leaf. A leaf, okay, that's kind of dangling. And as long as all the conditions are perfect, the leaf stays still. But somebody sneezes, somebody walks by quickly, and everything falls apart. Maybe another example is like a house of cards, okay? And as long as everything's okay with work, everything's okay with relationship, nothing happens with my physical illness, like everything is okay, our faith is okay. But that ain't life. Life isn't gonna be everything's gonna be okay, and we're living that now, so you don't need me to make that case. What our hope is in this series, that we'd be unshakable, that our trust would be in the guide, 
more than in the path. That if you remember from week one, we sh I showed you that video of the person who was doing the trust fall and Jesus says, fall back. And it took her a hard time and she fell back. But then eventually Jesus says, okay, you trust me. Now I stand behind you and fall forward. Okay. And the trust is not in the path. The trust is in the guide. The trust is not in the hand, but in the dealer of the hand. Okay. Not the set of cards that I got, but who it is that dealt it to me. And the way that we get there as we've been talking about for the past several weeks, is there's a God part and a me part, okay? I have to first understand the nature of God and the character of God, and that's what we're doing. Each week, we're looking at a different attribute of God's character. I have to learn who he is, and then number two, I have to practice trusting him. I have to take that step of faith. I have to know that the person behind me is strong, and I have to know that he's paying attention, and then I have to take that step. That's what we're doing. First week, we looked at the sovereignty of God. All right, and I shared you with that verse from Lamentations 3.37. You all remember Lamentations 3.37. It says, Who is he who speaks? And it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? And we looked at how at all times, all circumstances, fully in the hand of God. Nothing is outside that hand of God. Life is not chaos. Life is not out of control. Life is all right there. Maybe out of my control, out of your control, but never outside the control of the Almighty, the Pantocrator, for whom all things exist in the palm of his hand. Last week, we looked at the goodness of God. And the goodness of God showed us that sometimes, you know what, we will be tempted to reject what God is doing or to judge God and say, that was not good. That was not wise. That didn't make any sense. But when we're in that situation, we're going to remind ourselves that we are not the best judge of goodness because our definition of goodness is A, subjective, B, self-serving, and C, short-sighted. Whereas God is absolute goodness and everything God does is for two purposes, my perfection and his glory. So again, goal there, trust in the giver of the gift more than in the gift itself. Now today's topic, one I'm excited about, we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God. And this topic is so important of God as father that when Jesus came in the New Testament and they asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, you seem to know God pretty well. Tell us when we are communicating with God, when I look up at God and I want to reach out to God, when do I call him? How do I refer to him? What is the context of the relationship? And Jesus said, as he famously said in Matthew 6, 9, a verse that we all know, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. He didn't say our Lord, the Almighty, the Pantocrator. He didn't say the Creator or the Master. He said that when you look at God, I want you to see Father, Son, more than anything else. Now, you know, when Jesus said this sentence right here, in this manner, pray our Father in heaven, when the disciples and the listeners heard Jesus say this, do you know what their response was? When Jesus said, call God your Father, the disciples and all those who heard, he said, our Father, and they said, <clears throat> it was a gasp. Because did you know that in the entire Old Testament, Old Testament, thousands of years, three quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament, Old Testament, all those years, the number of times that God is referred to as Father is seven. Seven times. So at the entire Old Testament, God is called Father. What is God called in the Old Testament? He's called the Creator, 
He's called the Almighty. He's called the Lord. Called the Master. That's how they knew God in the Old Testament. They knew thunder and lightning and obedience to the law, or else the earth will open and swallow you. That's how they knew God. But here, in the Gospels, the Gospels alone, Jesus refers to God as Father more than 150 times in the four Gospels. Jesus refers to God as Father. And in this chapter alone, Matthew 6, seven times, just in this chapter, Jesus calls God Father. So what I want to say is this, based on those numbers alone, I could say, I could argue that the primary message that Jesus wanted to reveal about who God is, is that he is Father, is that God is not an impersonal force. God is not an angry tyrant. God is a loving dad. And a loving dad desires, yes, he desires obedience, but obedience is to lead to an intimate relationship. That's the end goal. The obedience, not for the sake of obedience, but for the sake of relationship. So yes, God is sovereign and he is powerful, but he is more than that. And he is father. Yes, God is good and he always does what's good, but God is not just like a, a helpline or a, a dear Anne column or something like that that's there to bail us out when we're in trouble. God desires father intimacy. And even this word, our father, the word in Aramaic is Ava. And Ava is the word from which we derive the word Papa. Okay, that's why we say like Papa Ava and then the Pope, Papa Ava Tuedris. Okay, so Papa, a term of endearment, a term of intimacy, it's like saying daddy. Now, I know today we're going to talk about God as Father. I know as soon as I say that, this is a hard subject. And if we're honest, we all come to the table here with some pre-bias to this discussion. Because all of us have a father. And ultimately, you can say what you want to say and think what you want to think, but ultimately, our earthly fathers will impact how we view our heavenly father. Because as soon as they say, God is like your father, this conjures up an image. And for some of us, it's a good image. For some of us, maybe not so good image, but there's an image that's there. That's why I always say, dads, we have a, a big responsibility upon us. Because at some point in time, your children are going to go to church and their Sunday school teacher or their priest is going to tell them, God is just like your father. God is just like your father. And some kids will say, no, thank you. Like I already got one of those. I don't need a second one. Come spend the weekend with your father. I don't want to spend the weekend with my father because my father is always yelling at me or my father is always, you remember when we were kids? Okay. I'm sure you heard this is the way I heard it. Okay. When we're with our moms and we're doing something, just wait till your father comes home. Just wait till your father comes home. And that those words can, 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 you know, strike fear in the hearts of children all over the place. Well, what I want to say is God is our father in heaven. And some of us, like I said, have great relationships with our dads and it's really helped us to understand who God is. Some of us, maybe not so much. What I wanna do is I wanna wipe the slate clean today. And I wanna look at who God is as father and I wanna erase, kind of like I said, the, the preconceived biases that are given to us by our earthly fathers. You know, some people resist the term father because of this exact point. Like, for example, I'm a priest and you call me father, Father Anthony. And some people say we shouldn't call a priest father because a priest should be a servant and a priest should be there for all and a priest shouldn't be, you know, like uh, it shouldn't be about power or authority or whatever. And I say, who told you that's what father means? Like that's what exactly what fa fatherhood doesn't mean any of those things. Fatherhood means exactly a servant for all. The problem is we have bad examples around us. So we think that the word, we've changed the meaning of the word to fit the examples around us. What we're gonna to do today 
is we're going to look at the fatherhood of God. And I will show you, and you will see, we'll see it together, that the fatherhood of God is the exact opposite of all those negative things. Let's start with the, what fatherhood does not mean, and then let's go to what it does mean. The fatherhood of God, let's go to misconceptions based on our earthly fathers, is that we think of God, based on our earthly fathers, as unpleasable, unpleasable unreasonable, unstable, and unable. Unpleasable and unreasonable, unstable and unable. Let's start with unpleasable and unreasonable. It's not hard to see where this came from, right? If you grew up in a house and you got a C, dad would say C is not good enough, need a B. And then you got a B and dad says B is not good enough, you need an A. And then you got an A and dad says A is not good enough, you need straight A's. And then you get straight A's and dad says not good enough, you should have a job. When I was your age, I was working while getting straight A's. And it's just one thing after another and it's never enough, never enough, never enough. There's always something that we're lacking. If you grew up in a home like this, then you would think of God as the fun police. Basically, God is some glorified hall monitor. Why are you doing that? Shall not do that? Put that down? Don't wipe that smile off your face, sir. And if that's you, you might be living a spiritual life and doing spiritual things, but I bet you, you might not be doing it for the right reason. You might be doing it out of fear and not out of love. So for example, you pray every morning, but you don't pray to connect with God as much as you pray because you're afraid that if you don't pray, that God is going to smite you down. You make the sign of the cross when you get in a car, not because you are asking God's protection and inviting God's protection, but you're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you don't. You fast, you give, you may go to confession very regularly, even more regularly than, than others, but it's not necessarily out of a love and a desire to grow closer to God, but I have a feeling of guilt and shame, and if I don't, what's going to happen to me? You may be doing the right thing, but not for the right reason. You may be doing it all simply to appease an unreasonable and unpleasable God to get him off your back. Let's go to unstable and unable. This is the person who would say, you know what? I prayed, I fasted, I gave, I served, and God let me down. And sometimes God answers the prayers for some people, but sometimes God ignores other people. So you know what? What's the point? Like no one wants to deal with an inconsistent boss. No one wants to deal with, with a God who sometimes is yes and sometimes is no and sometimes is love and sometimes is wrath. So you know what? No, thank you. I don't need God. Like, I'm sure he's good and I'm sure he's powerful for those people. But for me, he's probably got bigger things to worry about than little old me. He's got other things that are concerning him more than myself. Well, what I say to you, if you're struggling with any of those misconceptions, that God is neither unpleasable nor unreasonable, he is not unstable nor unable. Who God is, your heavenly father, is close and caring. He is close and he is caring. Let's start with the caring piece of it. Once upon a time, in the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 4, the apostles were all in a boat together in the middle of the night. The apostles were those who were closest to Jesus. They lived together, they ate together, they did everything together. This would be the original BFFs of Jesus, okay, if he had them when he was here on this earth. And they were in a boat, and they were in the middle of the sea, and it was dark. And then all of a sudden, they started to hear some raindrops. You don't want raindrops if you're in a boat. Then all of a sudden, they heard the wind start to pick up. Then all of a sudden, the rain got a little bit harder, and then the wind got a little bit harder. 
And then the waves started to rise. And all of a sudden, okay, according to scripture, it says the boat was being tossed to and fro by the waves. The boat was being tossed to and fro. I don't know about you. I'm in an airplane. You know in an airplane and it goes like, you know that? Like that, man, that's enough to make me want to vomit, okay? And these guys are in a boat and I'm sure they didn't have seatbelts and they didn't have a little thing that would drop oxygen for them and they didn't have any of that stuff. They're in a boat being tossed to and fro. And the scriptures say that the water started to fill the boat. I'm not a, 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 uh, a boating kind of a guy, but I'm pretty sure the water's not supposed to go inside the boat. And I know that if it does, that's not good. Gilligan's Island taught us that, if nothing else. And that's where they are. And where is Jesus during this time? Is he with them? Yes, he's with them. The Almighty, the Pantocrator, the good God is with them. And what is he doing? Look here. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Not just asleep, but asleep on a pillow. Oh, was it a comfortable pillow, Jesus? Was it one of the ones with the frilly little sides? Was it one of those like cooling pillows? Because it's very important that while we're dying, that you have good neck posture to comfort your head. So Because we, we don't want a neck issue. Jesus is in the boat with them. Pantocrator, all good. But he's asleep on the pillow. And that's oftentimes how we feel. And we know he's good. And we know he only does good things. And we know he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. The problem is in my life, he's asleep. That's the problem in my life. And I'm sure he's awake for that person or awake for that person or the holy people. But in my life, he's asleep. And then they asked this question. They awoke him. And I think this is one of the most important questions in, in all of humanity to figure out. Like, you got to figure this answer to this question. They awoke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And my question to you is, do you know the answer to that question? Like, let's be honest. Sometimes that's how we feel. God, do you care or not care? Like, here we are. We got coronavirus. People losing jobs. People getting sick. People don't have toilet paper to wipe themselves. Okay, do you care or not care? Do you care or not care? Because easy, one snap of your fingers and everything gets solved. We know that you're good. Will you sleep? Does God care or doesn't care? Let's forget about big things. Does God care or not care about your grades? Does God care or not care about your car payments? Does God care or not care about whether your career? Does God care or not care about your emotions? If you're sad, if you're happy, if you're scared? Does God care or not care about your dreams? The spiritual ones and the non-spiritual ones. Does God care or not care? And I'm telling you, for those, I'm thankful this isn't me, okay? But I'm thankful that this, okay, but if this is you, if you grew up with a dad who didn't care, then you will be tempted to think that God doesn't care either. If you grew up with a dad who was always too busy, who always had better things, who was always, come back later, then you will be tempted to think that God is the same way. Oh, your silly little dreams. That's not for now. Or, oh, I'm busy right now. Or the news is on right now. Or I'm, I'm what at work. If that's how you grew up, you will struggle. But I'm telling you that God is not like your dad. God does care. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. St. Peter knew Jesus pretty well, didn't he? He wrote, Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. All your care. Your spiritual care, your physical care, your social care, your relational care, your career care, your emotional care, your psychological care. All of your care, we can cast it upon him. There is nothing that I cannot go to God and say, God, you're my father. I, I, I'm casting my care upon you. And I liken it this way. Let's say my daughter. Okay, my daughter, okay, or my son, either one. 
Let's say something happens to them at school. And it's really not a big deal. Like, let's say, you know, you know, Junior, you know, tripped and spilled his books. And like, you know, it's the end of the world. I spilled my books and people laugh at me in the hallway, whatever it may be. Do I care or not care? I mean, I don't really care because it's not that big a deal. And by the weekend, everyone will have forgotten it. I don't really care. But because it matters to you, I care. So I'm not saying that the book spilling is important. Just like I'm saying to God, God, do you care about my car payments? Well, in the end, God doesn't really care about the car payments. In the end, God doesn't really care about these things. But because I care, then he cares. I'm not saying those things are important. I'm saying I am important and I am his son. Therefore, he cares. That's what being a father means. Let's go to the second one. We said he is close and he is caring. Let's go to the close. God is close. God is never far. There was a song by Bette Midler, which messed us up. Okay, you remember the song by Bette Midler? God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us, repeats it three times, from a distance. I heard you at home. Very good. God is watching us from a distance. Excuse me, Miss Bette Midler, with all my due respect to you and all your great musical career, who told you that God is watching from a distance? And I would make the argument that God is never at a distance. And no matter how far away we may think we are, God is always near. We're going to look at a story right now of a famous character from the New Testament called Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, probably you've heard this story before, all have heard it. Zacchaeus was a famous man. And he was so famous that they actually wrote a hymn in his honor. And a hymn that commemorates him. And for years and generations and generations and generations, Zacchaeus has been immortalized in the church through this hymn. Sing along with me if you know it at home. Here are the words. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree because the Lord, he wanted to see. How's that for a legacy? You are Zacchaeus. You are being called a wee little man for generations and generations. These snot-nosed little Sunday school punk kids are going to look at you and say, hey, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And for all eternity, that's how you will be known. You can only imagine his, his children and grandchildren must be so proud of, of Zacchaeus. But to be truthful, to be honest, if you would have called Zacchaeus a wee little man when he was alive, that's probably the nicest thing that he ever heard. Because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And a tax collector equals scum of the earth. Tax collectors were the worst kind of people. You hear in the, in the New Testament that you will hear about the sinners and the tax collectors. The sinners and the tax collectors. Why do the writers of the New Testament distinguish between sinners and tax collectors? You know why? Because they didn't want to offend the sinners by lumping the tax collectors with them. Sinners were a group. Tax collectors were a much worse group. Because tax collectors, who they were, was, okay, so at the time, Israel was under Roman occupation. So the Romans invaded the land and they were in charge. And they wanted to collect taxes from the Jewish people. So what they would do is they would hire a Jewish man to serve as a tax collector, to collect taxes from you and you and you and you. And they would give them Roman soldiers to help them accomplish this mission. So what the tax collectors would do, let's say you owed you know, five pieces of silver. They would say, your bill is actually uh, six. And what they would do is they would give Rome the five and pocket one for themselves. 
And then you know what? They have a Roman guard with them. So if you said, no, it's only five, then the Roman guard would take care of you and would, would take you out because they didn't know it. They would just listen to him. So tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were using a time of great plight in Israel for their own personal gain. Like I try to think of like how you could, how you could relate this. Like tax collectors were people that couldn't be seen in public. They, they, they were the worst. I would imagine if I were to make this kind of relevant to today, imagine someone who today is taking advantage of this coronavirus situation and the world on lockdown for their own personal gain. Imagine you're out there at Costco to buy toilet paper because you have nothing in your house. And then all of a sudden you see an elderly couple, all right? And then, then they're going for that last thing of toilet paper and you shove them out the way, grab the toilet paper and say, I'll sell it to you, the last one for you know $30. You would look at that person in Costco and you would say, you're scum of the earth. This is when we should be banding together. We should be working together. We should be there for the elderly, not there for our own sake. Well, I'm telling you, a tax collector, that's who it was. People saw tax, tax collectors couldn't go out in public, okay? They had to go like in hiding and they would go with the Roman soldier to protect them because if people found these tax collectors unprotected, man, they would kill these guys because they were the worst. They were the absolute worst. And what we learn about Zacchaeus, he was not just a tax collector, but in Luke 19, verse 1 through 3, we see, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was a chief of the tax collector. means he was like the head of them all. He was promoted up, which, which explains why he was rich, because probably the people underneath him charged you five, took one for themselves, or sorry, you owed five to Rome, they charged you eight. They took one for themselves and gave two to Zacchaeus. So this is why Zacchaeus was doing so well. He was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Zacchaeus was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a traitor. And on top of that, Luke tells us he was short. <laughs> yeah, that little guy over there, that wee little man over there was Zacchaeus. Nobody wanted Zacchaeus around. Zacchaeus would have been great in the time of coronavirus because he would have been social distancing, okay, not through his, any of his own choice. No one wanted to be around Zacchaeus. He only went outside when he was protected. But there's one exception. There actually was one person who did want to be around Zacchaeus. There was actually one person who, when he saw Zacchaeus, didn't walk to the other side. He actually went to him and he wanted to be with Zacchaeus. Who could such a person be? Verse four. So he, Zacchaeus, ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he, Jesus, was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. Dot, dot, dot. I want you, forget, we all know how the story goes. But let's say you don't know how the story goes. Jesus drew near him. What do you think Jesus would say? Jesus would do when he saw this filthy scum of the earth, Zacchaeus in front of him. I remember one time, my kids were young. We were at a playground together. I don't know for what reason, for some reason, my wife wasn't able to take them, so I was forced. I mean, I got the opportunity to take my kids and spend time with them and do things like that. I remember being at the playground and the playground ugh, is disgusting. These kids, I don't know where they were raised, like by animals or in, in barns, like the mulch, like in their clothes, in their, like in one ear and stick it out the other. Like there was, there was, there was kids with dirt all over them. 
I think it was a mud stain on their shorts. I hope it was a mud stain. Like, I really don't know what was going on. Snots flying, boogers everywhere. Like, it's just like the worst place imaginable. And I remember seeing this one particular kid. Kid was gross. Kid was disgusting. And I remember seeing this other dad. It was presumably his dad, okay? I assume that was the case. And the dad comes to him. And I'm thinking like, hose the kid down. Like, that's what the kid needs. Like, get the fire hose, hose him down before you take him. And that dad grabbed the child in a nice way and he like cleaned him off. And like he wiped his snotty little boogers. And he took him into a car and presumably, again, I don't really know, but presumably he allowed him into his own house as well. And I'm thinking to myself, man, oh man, only person that would do that for that snot-nosed little kid must be his own father. Because you know what dads do? And moms too, okay, but we're talking about fatherhood. What dads do I would never do that for that kid. But if that was my own kid, hopefully, okay, <laughs> probably, okay, probably, if that was my own kid, my reaction would be much different. Because I'm not really there to clean up dirty little kids on the playground. That's not really my thing. But if it's my own kid, then you know what? Then I will clean that kid up. And I will take that kid to my house. And I'll sanitize the kid from head to toe. But he's my kid, so I will not run from him. I will actually run to him and that's our primary lesson about, oh, sorry, right here. I didn't get through the rest of the verse. Okay, let's go to this and we'll come back. That's our primary lesson about God's fatherhood is that even when we're far, God is still near. Even when we're far, God is still near. And that's what happened right here in the rest of this verse, okay? In verse four, when, the, when Jesus came to him, Jesus said to him, Jesus didn't yell at him, Jesus didn't scold him. Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste. Hurry up quickly and come down for today I must stay at your house. Wow. Even when we're far, God is still near. Even when we're dirty, even when we're disgusting, even when we think there's no way God would want me, God runs to us because that's what a father does. We talked a couple weeks ago about how God is Pantocrator and there's nothing outside of his hands. Well, did you know that nothing outside of his hands includes you? And that means that no matter how far you've run, no matter how long you've been running, no matter how bad you are, no matter what conditions around you, there's never a time that you are so far that God cannot reach you. Did you know that? And if you don't believe me, go ask a guy named Jonah because Jonah one time said, I'm gonna run away from God and I'm gonna get in this boat and go so far away that God can't catch me. And God is just laughing because Jonah, there's no place you go that's outside of my hand. And I'm telling you that no matter how far, no matter how bad, no matter how filthy, no matter how disgusting, there's never a time where you are so far that the almighty hand of God, the almighty father, the almighty good one cannot reach you and pull you and draw you near because he, even when we're far, is always near. Go back to the story of Zacchaeus. Picture the scene with me, okay? Back then in, in, in the first century, in the streets of Jerusalem, it's not like today in the social distancing and stay six feet apart. It is the opposite, man. Everyone was on top of everyone and everywhere Jesus went, there was crowds of people and commotion and pushing and shoving and tugging and please help heal my daughter and please, and there's always commotion everywhere Jesus went. The last person that you would notice in the midst of that commotion is a tiny little man a short little man who's way up there in a tree. Like that's why Zacchaeus went up there so nobody would see him. How did Jesus notice him? How did Jesus, of all the people vying for his attention, Jesus made a beeline and said, I don't see the crowds. He only saw one person. And that was Zacchaeus. 
And I think Jesus does that every day. I think every single day, Jesus looks past the crowds of people and he finds the one person who's in need. And I think he's doing that today, probably through this, through this, through this video right here that we're talking right now, is he looks past all the people who may be tuning in and he's going to that one person who feels far, who feels lost, who feels like I got no worth, I'm too bad, and he's coming for you. And he's saying, no matter how far you may be, I'm still near, because that's what fatherhood means. Story ends in verse six. So Zacchaeus made haste and came down. He received him joyfully. The story goes that the guy that nobody wanted to talk to, the guy that nobody wanted to be around, ended up hosting a dinner party with Jesus as his guest of honor. Think about that for a second. That the guy that nobody wanted to talk to, the scum of the earth, the filth, like if you missed this day in Jerusalem, like you missed a lot, like what happened this day? Well, the scum of the earth guy was visited by the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah, visited him in his home. Not too shabby for that wee little man, is it? Question for you. Have you ever been at a point in time in your life, I already know the answer to this question, by the way. Ever been a point in time in your life where you felt forgotten by God? You felt too far, too bad, too dirty, too unworthy, too unholy. You ever had a point in time where you felt like, you know what, God stopped caring. God has forgotten about me. God has left me. Well, let me tell you, take comfort in the fact that God is your father. And there is never a point in time where God forgets his children or God doesn't notice every little detail that takes place in your life. One of the greatest ways that we show love for our children is attention. Okay, a child who doesn't feel like they're getting attention, you know what I mean? They, you know, tugging on the mom's dress or banging or, you know, mommy, 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 mommy. We all want attention. We all want attention. Well, did you know that you have the full attention of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for better or for worse? Look what this verse says, Luke 12, verse six through seven. It says, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says it this way. He says, you know a, a stinky little sparrow? And a sparrow, he gave it a, 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 a dollar value, a financial value. A sparrow is worth five sparrows for two coins. So the math majors, that's 40%, if I'm not mistaken, of a coin. That's two-fifths, right? Two-fifths. Two-fifths? Yeah. Two-fifths. Two-fifths. No, five sparrows for two copper coins. No, opposite. Five seconds. Okay? Very little amounts of what that means, okay? A sparrow, okay, five seconds or two-fifths. My math is a little bit off right now, but I think it's five seconds, okay? Five hats. A sparrow is worth nothing, nothing, nothing. But not one of them drops without God. God notices every little one. And he says, you are my precious child. If I don't forget them, how could I forget you? I'll give you another one right here, okay? Here's your head are all numbered. Let's go to this one. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Did you know that every prayer you've ever uttered, even the ones that you think that nobody hears you, and the ones you think God will never accept, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Every prayer, no matter how pathetic that prayer was, is heard by God, and he is near to those who call upon him. Look at this one. Psalm 56, verse 8 is one of my favorite verses. You number my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Did you know? That every tear you've ever cried, God knows it. And God was there to catch it. And he held on to it. And you're going to get to heaven one day. And God's going to show you a bottle. For some of us, maybe a big bottle, okay? 
Say, here's every tear you ever cried. You say, God, do you remember that? He said, I remember that. He said, God, you were there? He said, I was there. Because I'm your father. You cry? I mean, you may not see me cry on the inside, but man, I'm your father. I'll give you one more about how God notices and cares. This is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14 and 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And my Lord has forgotten me. Something we've all said. The Lord has forsaken me, forgotten me. And in the response of the prophet, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Like, could be a mother who's breastfeeding a child who'd be like, what's his name? Where is he? Oh, there. No. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? No. Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Sometimes, again, because of our earthly dads, we think we need to prove ourselves to God. We need to show that we're worthy. We need to show that we deserve his attention. Well, the truth of the matter is, is God is already convinced. You don't need to prove it. God is already convinced. And when the world tells you that you have no value, you tell the world very kindly. I want to say S-H-U-T-U-I-S-H-U-T-U-P, okay? But I don't want to say that because there's kids watching over here, okay? You tell the world, but you're allowed to tell the world that, okay? You can say it to them, okay? When you get those thoughts that you are not worthy, you get those thoughts that you're too bad, that nobody cares, that you've been forgotten, you say, put a nice way, put a sock in it. That's how the pleasant way, but you can translate it however it is that you want. And you say, no hey, no way, no how, sir. Because you know what? I am inscribed on the palms of God's hand. I am tattooed, okay? And sometimes we think of our names being tattooed. It doesn't say names. So I'm gonna go with my face. I'm gonna put my big, fat, ugly face right there on God's hand. And I would imagine that when God looks at his hand, he sees my smiling face right there and he remembers me. And there's nowhere that God goes that he forgets about me, or forgets about my circumstance. And you know what? That makes you pretty special in my eyes. You would be tattooed on God's hands. Every week, like I said, we're learning an attribute of God and then we're doing an action step. The action step this week is very simple, all right? And there's not much structure around it. Your, your, your homework for this week is to draw near to God, trusting that he is already near to me. Draw near to God. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'll leave the specifics up to you. I don't even know what that means. But what that means for some of us, all right, we got, we, we got the extra time this week. Maybe what that means, we need to close the door to our room and we need to be honest with God. And we just need to speak from the heart. Some of us, okay, myself included, I, I feel a lot better when I write. My prayers are a lot more uh, concrete. Okay, and my thoughts kind of disentangle themselves when I write them out. So maybe I need to sit in that room, take my journal, and I just need to get it all out. God, I'm disappointed. I don't like where my life is. I'm frustrated. God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Like I know we're talking about faith and faith and faith, but you know what? I'm afraid. Get it all out with God. God, I feel like you left me. God, I feel like I disappointed you. God, I feel like you don't care. Like we need to draw near to God, trusting he's already near to me. And for those who did the readings this morning and prayed the liturgical prayers, that actually was the Catholic epistle, which I didn't even realize from James chapter four, verse seven. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the reason is because we can, he will draw near to us because he's already near to us. So we're gonna practice this week. We're gonna take some time. The goal is not what we do, but the goal is the end state that intimacy level with God, where we can say our Father, our Ava, our Papa. Okay, I'll finish you up here with a story and a verse. And the story is something that you may have heard the story before. I was on the internet, okay, and I've, I've seen it in books and things like that. 
Once upon a time, there was a professor who came before his class, all right, and he pulled out a $100 bill. I don't have a $100 bill. We're on a budget. So this is a five, but you can use your imagination. Okay, we're on a priest's salary over here. So we pulled out a $100 bill. And he took this $100 bill before his class and he asked them the question, who wants this $100 bill? And of course, everybody raised their hand. Like, Why wouldn't you want a $100 bill? And then he said, okay. And he took the bill and he crumpled it up and he threw it on the ground and he picked it up. Who wants this bill now? What do you think? How many people raised their hand? Everyone raised their hand. And then he kicked some dirt on it. And everyone, I still want this. And then he stomped on it with his feet. And he held it up. Who wants it? Of course, everybody wants it. Why would you want, his question to them, his lesson is very simple. Why would you want a $100 bill that's been stomped on, that's been thrown dirt on, that's been stepped on, that's been crumpled up? It's so ugly. It's not as pretty as it was before. But the bottom line is the value doesn't change based on the exterior. The value of the $100 bill is intrinsic, not extrinsic. It's not based on what it looks like on the outside, but it's intrinsic value. It will always be worth $100 no matter what it looks like on the outside. Same is true for you. Same is true for me. Our value as the children of God is not extrinsic, it is intrinsic. It is not dictated by how good I am or by how many prayers I said or by how much money I put in the money box. My value as a child of God is intrinsic. I am his son. I have his name. My face is plastered, is tattooed on the palm of his hand. And therefore, no matter what I've done or where I've been or how I'm feeling, I'm always his child. Just like in the movie Aladdin, for those who saw it, when the king's daughter dresses in normal clothes and walks out in the street, she's still the daughter of the king. The fact that she put on sweatpants or a sweatshirt or whatever it may be doesn't change. Like her, her, her authority is not based on her evening wear or on what she's wearing, but it's based on who, or we should better say whose she is. And the same is true for me and you. Here's our final verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read this together at home. Read it with me, or those of you who are at home, because it's a beautiful verse. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You know what I love about this verse? The words are so beautiful, but what I love is the writer of this verse, John, who is a pretty mellow guy. Like he's the love guy, the love, 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 love guy. But when it came to being called children of God, I love this exclamation point that he puts at the end because it got John excited. Say, so you know what? When all else out there tells me I'm no value, when all else tells me that I'm far, all else tells me I'm bad, all else tells me I'm guilty. You know what? I'm a child of God. And even if no matter what the world may tell me, no matter what my parents may tell me, no matter what anyone says, I am a child of God. I have the highest standing because my father, the Pantocrator, the one who is all good, is also my daddy. And I have a unique relationship with him by which I can come to him anytime because he is caring. He is close. He is near. No matter how far I may be, he's always near to me. Let's bow our heads and say a prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, what an honor that we can call you Father. None of us is worthy, Lord, to be your children. All the things that we've done, all the mistakes we've made, thank you, Lord, for bestowing upon us this great honor, which we don't even understand what it means to be your sons and daughters. But I pray this week, Lord, that you would help us all to come to you in honesty and sincerity 
as, as true children coming to our Ava, our Papa, our Father, and casting all our care upon you, knowing full well that you care for us. Lord, we pray for all those who are in need of special prayers during this time. Pray that you would guide us all through this circumstance that we're in, Lord, and that we would come out stronger, stronger as, as a community, as a church, as a nation, and most important, Lord, stronger in our connection with you. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Please make sure you go to our website, stsa.church online. That's stsa.church online. There you can find questions for discussion that you can do in your homes or in your groups. You'll be able to see other resources that we've made available. And you'll also be able to see the schedule of other services that we'll be doing online and I uh, hope to see you, uh, if not in the meantime, at least see you next week, same time.